And we are looking in this series at challenges to the Christian faith that are communicated through memes. And by now you should know what a meme is, but to just give you the gist again, I'll share with you uh, three more of my recent favorites. Let's put the first one on there. It says, me, God, I need some discernment in my life, how it feels sometime. There's a door clearly labeled Pulse. Pulse, it's relatable for most of us. Let's put the next one up. I like this next one. King David, the man in that story should be killed. Nathan the prophet, that man is you. King David, you got me there. You got me there. If you know the story from the Bible, that's hilarious. If you don't, you can just laugh awkwardly. We'll move on to the next one I've got for you. In the Bible, Jesus would often heal the lame. Let me pray for you. That's a fantastic Christian diss if you don't know what that is. It's a great one. You could use it on your kids sometimes. That'll be fantastic. Lots of fun. So our main meme today is a bit of an unusual one because it is often posted by Christians and non-Christians alike. Its star is Mahatma Gandhi. And when I was researching the story behind this oft-shared meme, I honestly couldn't find a straight answer. And I'll share the reason for that in a few minutes. The story and the quote started appearing in media in the mid-2000s, and there are two stories that claim to be connected to this quote. The first story tells of a young Gandhi who's practicing law in apartheid-era South Africa, which is enforced legal racial segregation, if you don't know what apartheid was. I grew up in that in South Africa, actually. He was seriously exploring Christianity after becoming enamored with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew, and so he decided to check out a local church. When he attempted to walk in the building, he was stopped by a white usher who told him he was not welcome in the church because of the color of his skin. The second version of the story is similar, but it locates Gandhi in the city of Kolkata in India, where he is rejected from entering a church because only high caste Indians and white people are allowed in the church. But in both versions of the story, the incident serves as the moment that Gandhi turns his back on Christianity. He continues to embrace some of the teachings of Jesus, but he has no interest in the church or in the religion of Christianity. And that all serves as the background for the famous quote we're going to see in a moment while conversing with the Christian missionary E. Stanley Jones, who spent much time in India, it is claimed that Gandhi said, let's put the meme up there, it is claimed that he said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians, your Christians are so unlike Christ. And so you've probably seen this quote before, you've probably seen it possibly shared by a, a very pious Christian because if you wanna be a woke Christian, you have to actually talk about how awful most Christians are. You have to make fun of your own people if you wanna appear enlightened. Uh, there's other versions of this that also get shown around. Perhaps you've heard people say things like, Gandhi said, if Christians would really live according to the teachings of Christ as found in the Bible, all of India would be Christian today. Or how about this one? If Jesus came to the earth again, he would disown many things that are being done in the name of Christianity. I think we're all on the same page with that one, actually. All seemingly damning quotes of both Christians and the religion of Christianity. Now, before we talk about how to respond or, or how to process these types of statements and questions, I need to share some things for you that are for your own knowledge. This is not to share with someone who might say, well, what do you think about this? This is just for you to understand. They're not counter arguments because what I'm about to share doesn't change the essence of the objections that are being raised by these memes. They're just gonna help you think about things a little more clearly. The first thing you need to know is that these are all fake quotes. None of them are actually real. Our central quote, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians, your Christians are so unlike your Christ, only appeared in mainstream media attributed to Gandhi for the first time in the mid-2000s. You can go check this out online yourself. In reality, the quote is based on something a Hindu Indian philosopher named Baba Dada said in the mid-1920s, and his quote was, Jesus is ideal and wonderful, but you Christians, you are not like him. Again, I think most of us would not disagree with that. All the Gandhi quotes are apocryphal. 
They're passed on and disseminated as though genuine quotes when in reality they are not. Interestingly enough, Gandhi also never said, be the change you wish to see in the world. And he also never said, an eye for an eye will make the whole world blind. Didn't say those things. Second thing you need to know is that when Gandhi did comment on Jesus and Christianity, and he did multiple times, he was not commenting on the Jesus that is revealed in the totality of scripture. So he was not commenting on the Jesus that the whole Bible describes. Thomas Jefferson, the famous founding father and early American president, is famous for making his own version of the Bible. Thomas Jefferson was a materialist, which means he didn't believe in any type of supernatural world. So he went through the Bible and he cut out everything in the Bible that was supernatural. Every miracle, every talk about the spiritual world like that, and you had what was called the Thomas Jefferson Bible. And it's still in existence today. You can go and see it. I think it's in the Smithsonian, if I'm right. And so what Thomas Jefferson did is he reduced the scriptures to a book of moral teachings and illustrations, and Gandhi approached the Bible and Jesus in a similar fashion. He created in his own mind and conception a version of Jesus that fit how he already saw the world, and then he fit Jesus into that and embraced the parts of Jesus' teachings that already fit with his existing worldview. Gandhi is on record as saying he does not believe that all of the gospels are historical truth and he completely rejected all the writings of the apostle Paul who wrote most of the New Testament. Gandhi was a social activist, obviously, and so he welcomed the parts of Jesus' teaching and ministry where he talks about things like caring for the poor and widows and orphans, but Gandhi rejected or completely ignored the gospel message, issues like sin and salvation and atonement and our need for forgiveness. He rejected all of that. When asked why he did not embrace Christianity, Gandhi said it offered nothing he could not get from his own religion or religions. Observing, quote, to be a good Hindu also meant that I would be a good Christian. There is no need for me to join your creed, to be a believer in the beauty of the teachings of Jesus, or to try to follow his example. In other words, the more you dig into his life, you'll find that Gandhi is actually essentially a pluralist. He believed that many religions were true and offered the same things as Christianity because he would reduce religions down to a set of moral teachings. And as we talked about last week, the only way to draw the conclusion that religions are all essentially saying the same thing is to reject or willingly ignore much of what Jesus himself said. C.S. Lewis, in his landmark book, Mere Christianity, famously put it like this. I was able to put some of this on your outline. It's like the back half of the quote that I could fit on your outline. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That's Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. C.S. Lewis is referring to things that Jesus said, like John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Lewis's point was that the things that Jesus himself said don't allow you to say he was just a great moral teacher because he claimed to be God. He claimed to be the only way to have a relationship with God. So he doesn't give you that option to say he's just a great moral teacher. Either he's a lunatic who's out of his mind because he's claiming to be God when he's not. He's lying because he knows he's not God but he's claiming to be it, or he actually is God. 
But there's no option where you can say he was just a good man and a good teacher. He doesn't give you that option. Like Jefferson before him, Gandhi reduced Jesus to a collection of moral teachings selected to affirm his own passions and beliefs. We talked last week about how you just have to look a little beneath the surface of each religion to quickly realize there are differences between the major world religions that are incompatible. They teach opposite things and so they cannot be saying the same thing. It's logically impossible. So write this down, it's your first fill in. Gandhi commented on a Jesus of his own making, not the Jesus of the Bible. He commented on a Jesus of his own making, not the Jesus of the Bible. As I said earlier, the points I just made are are for you to understand. You know, if you tell a friend, well, Gandhi never actually said that, you're not actually addressing the point of the objection. You're just playing little games with them. And so we don't want to do that. So how do you address the point of the objection, the essence of it? Well, here's a few approaches that I think can be helpful. In 1986, Pope John Paul II, JP, made a highly publicized trip to India during which he spoke very highly of Gandhi and his legacy. And when speaking with a group of journalists, Pope John Paul II made this comment. Let's put it up there. He said, Gandhi was much more Christian than many people who say they are Christians. So what would you say to someone like Pope John Paul II when he says that? Or a person who says, well, well, Gandhi's way better at being a Christian than most Christians are. I think a great question to ask, to keep conversation going with someone, and just for us to explore, is well, what makes someone a Christian? Or what does it mean to be a Christian? When you say that he's more Christian than most Christians, what are you defining a Christian as? What makes someone a Christian? Surely there has to be more to being a Christian than just identifying as a Christian. There's gotta be more to it than just saying, I'm a Christian. To use a radical, a little bit silly example, if I say, I'm a vegan, is that all that I have to do in order to be considered a vegan and to represent the vegan movement? Is that all I have to do, just say, I am a vegan? Can I simply go on living as I do right now, eating beef burgers, bacon, fried chicken, and whatever else I feel like? Well, Well, of course not. We would all agree on that whatever our philosophical or political leanings, we would all agree that that would make no sense because we all understand that being a vegan involves very specific lifestyle choices that are then actually lived out. You actually have to live them out. Why then do we have so much trouble understanding the same concept when it comes to spirituality and religious beliefs? When you identify as a person who follows a specific religion or a specific belief system, it will inevitably include specific lifestyle choices that are actually lived out. You cannot simply identify yourself as a Christian or a Muslim or a Jehovah's Witness or a Hindu. There's a lot more to it than that. Simply saying that's what you are does not make it so. So write this down and we'll keep digging into this. Self-proclamation alone does not prove one's beliefs. Self-proclamation alone does not prove one's beliefs. You just saying, this is what I am, doesn't make it so. There's more to it than that. And it's really complicated, because as I was prepping this message, I, I was just thinking about the fact that our world is having increasing difficulty grasping this very simple concept. If I use the vegan example, people go, well, of course. You can't just say you're a vegan and then, and then do nothing that vegans are meant to do and be considered a vegan and yet there's all kinds of areas of culture and society now where we're saying no you can you can just say you are whatever you want to be and you magically become that regardless of how you live your life so this is a complicated issue but I think the logic still holds at least a little bit for right now but we see complicated things all the time like Catholic politicians who are pro-abortion or, or I was just reading in the States, again, confessed Muslim politicians who are in favor of things like gay marriage. And I give those as two examples because the orthodox teachings of both those religions are against those positions. But we see these things all the time in society. And so we get used to this idea that when it comes to religion and spirituality and beliefs, you can simply say you are whatever you want, then live your life however you want, and nobody is allowed to point out the absolute obvious, which is that 
Well, if you're Catholic, you actually can't believe that. That's not what Catholics believe. Nobody wants to say that because we're all so terrified of being called judgmental. But we're losing our grip of this idea that you can't just say you're something and then do whatever you want, but keep that title, keep that designator, keep that identifying name. It doesn't work that way. There are clear parameters of what it means to be vegan. I can't dismiss your objections when I say, well, of course I still eat meat. Have you had bacon? Obviously, I'm not going to give that up. And then you, if you say, well, well, then you're not a vegan. I can't dismiss your objection by simply saying, well, listen, this is my form of veganism. This is my veganism, okay? It's a personal issue. I don't think you have any right to judge me. You see, I'm not still a vegan if I'm eating beef burgers on the regular. What am I? I'm either one of two things. I'm a terrible vegan, right? Or I'm something else. Those are really the only two options, looking at this logically. I'm either a terrible vegan or I'm something else. But what I cannot do is say, I'm going to take the term vegan and I'm just going to change its meaning to suit whatever I want veganism to be. I can't do that. I have to either use a different term to identify myself or I have to invent a new one. I'm a neo-vegan. I could do that. But I can't just say, no, I am a vegan. I'm just going to change the definition of what a vegan is. If I eat meat, I'm either a terrible vegan or I'm something else. And I don't think any rational person can disagree with that assessment. And yes, I realize the world is full of irrational people. But if you claim to be a Muslim and you're not even trying to live by the five pillars of Islam, then you are either a terrible Muslim or you are something else. If you claim to be a Christian and you're not even trying to live your life in accordance with the teachings of Jesus, you are either a terrible Christian or you are something else. So when you encounter someone or a group of people who are Christians but they seem to be nothing like Jesus, it is worth asking the question, what makes someone a Christian? Because if they're not even trying to live their life based on the teachings of Jesus, there's a really good chance they're not a Christian. They're just a Christian in name only. Now many of the Christians that Gandhi would have encountered would have been British soldiers and politicians who had a view of Indian people that was outright racist. If you want to go back and read Winston Churchill's views of Indians, it'll become very obvious. And most of them were only quote-unquote Christian because it was the cultural belief system of the United Kingdom at that time. In other words, they were Christian in name only. So Gandhi lives to see thousands of British men who identify as Christians rape, pillage, and exploit his continent and his people. In his lifetime, he witnesses not directly, but while he's living in India, working in India, multiple massacres. In his later years, he witnesses the British exporting food from India as 12 to 29 million Indians are starving to death from a famine in the country. And in his last couple of years of life, he witnesses the arbitrary partitioning of India and Pakistan along religious lines, resulting in close to a million deaths over the coming decades. And all that begs the question, why would anyone think the perpetrators of such evil acts were Christians? Simple logic says they weren't, even if they were claiming that they were. Well, what if the Christians a person has met are trying to live their lives based upon the teachings of Jesus, but they're just not doing a very good job? What if they really are trying to follow the example of Jesus, but they're just terrible at it? I think we can gain more insight by returning to our example of someone who, who claims to be vegan but eats beef burgers on a regular basis. There's no question that they're a terrible vegan. They're getting some of the major parts, I mean the really big parts of veganism flat out wrong. They're not doing it right. But let me ask you, does it logically follow that their terrible execution of the values of veganism means the movement of veganism is not a legitimate lifestyle choice. Because they're doing a bad job doing it. Because they're being a bad example of it. Does that mean that the entire movement is now illegitimate? Well, well of course not. Let me put it another way. 
If I claim to care about cleaning up the planet, I claim that I care about environmentalism, but you see me regularly throwing plastic trash out my window as I drive, does that mean that the idea of trying to not litter is a joke of an idea? It's an illegitimate concept not to be taken seriously? In both examples, any reasonable person would respond with something along the lines of no, because the person's poor example has nothing to do with the central message of the movement or its validity. They're just doing a terrible job representing it. In philosophy, there's a Latin term called argumentum ad hominem. In English, we'd call it an ad hominem argument. And I put the definition on your outlines. Take a look at it. It typically refers to a fallacious argumentative strategy whereby genuine discussion of the topic at hand is avoided by instead attacking the character, motive, or other attribute of the person making the argument or persons associated with the argument rather than attacking the substance of the argument itself. Here's the idea, write this down and we'll explain it more. This is on your outlines. The fallacy of attacking the person instead of the position is known as an ad hominem argument. The fallacy of attacking the person instead of the position is known as an ad hominem argument. We just came through our election cycle, which again made me honestly grateful to be a Canadian because it's so gloriously short compared to the United States, which just goes on forever. But if you want to see great examples of ad hominem attacks, go look in the political world. And I talk to my friends. I have friends who are liberals. I have friends who are conservatives. But when politicians begin to attack each other as people rather than the positions that they stand for, those are ad hominem attacks. Someone makes a point and the response is essentially, well, you're stupid. You come from a rich family. You come from a poor family. None of those things have anything to do with the actual issue being discussed. You grew up with a silver spoon in your mouth. You're a working class person. Doesn't actually matter. What's the position? That's the substance of the issue. But people get caught up in ad hominem arguments all the time. It's really simply the adult version of somebody saying something challenging to you when you're a kid and your response is like, yeah, well, your face is stupid. It's the adult version of that when you don't actually have a substantive comeback or counterpoint or argument, you just attack the person. And so when someone objects to Christianity because they had a bad experience with a person or a group who claimed to be Christian, whether they realize it or not, they're making an ad hominem argument. They're judging Christianity on the basis of their experience with a person rather than the substance of Christianity. And the substance of Christianity is Jesus and the Bible. If you want to evaluate Christianity, that's how you do it. You study Jesus and the Bible. You do it directly. You study them for yourself. You don't do a study on somebody else's opinions of Jesus and the Bible. You study it for yourself. In fact, that's how you study any religion or any belief system. You don't only study those who claim to represent it. So write this down and we'll talk about it. In order to evaluate any religion or belief system, one must study the life of its originator, its sacred writings, and its teachings. You've got to study the life of its originator, its sacred writings, and its teachings, going back to its original form or as close to it as you can get. So again, you don't want to read interpretations. You want to go back and begin by reading it and studying it for yourself. So let's use Islam as an example. So when a terrorist attack happens, and the terrorists or terrorists were shouting Allah Akbar and they claim to be Muslims waging jihad, the media tends to scramble to make sure that everyone knows these are not real Muslims because Islam is a religion of peace. And they'll usually have some sort of representative of the Muslim community on the newscast to repeat that same message. The actions of these individuals do not represent Islam. On the one hand, the media is absolutely correct in pointing out that we should not draw conclusions about the religion of Islam based solely on the actions of some people who claim to be Muslims acting in the name of Islam. The media is right about that. On the other hand, 
They're completely wrong in claiming that Islam is a religion of peace simply because they have some Muslim representatives come on the show and say Islam is a religion of peace. How should we judge the religion of Islam? Well, you have to go back, like we said, to its originator, the one they call Prophet Muhammad, and you have to examine his writings, his teachings, and his life. That's how you get to the substance of Islam. You don't learn what Islam is truly about by asking a Muslim, what is it about? You have to actually study it for yourself. And you don't draw your conclusion simply based on how people act who claim to be Muslim. You have to look at the life of its originator, the life of Muhammad, the sacred writings, the Quran, the Hadith, and then you have to look at teachings as well of Muhammad. If the terrorists were acting in accordance with Muhammad's writings, teaching, and life, then they can rightly claim to be representing Islam. If the terrorists were acting in defiance of Muhammad's writings, teachings, and life, then they cannot claim to represent Islam. So if you want to judge Christianity logically and reasonably, you have to study the writings, teachings, and life of Jesus. You cannot judge Christianity solely on the basis of how those who claim to be Christians behave. So write this down. This is just a good thing to remember. Anybody can do anything in the name of anybody. Anybody can do anything in the name of anybody. You know, I can walk into a shopping mall, I can shoot a bunch of people dead and claim that I did it in your name. Your name. If you didn't have anything to do with my actions, should you be judged in any way for them? Of course not. If I want to judge you, I have to judge you, your life, your actions. If you want to judge Christianity, you have to judge Christ. You have to go to Jesus. And I would just encourage us as, as a point of mature, sober-minded, practical living, we live in, in, in such a gotcha culture where we love to do the ad hominem thing. Even Christians, conservatives love to do it. You know, somebody that's liberal, someone that's Muslim, someone who's this or that does something and it's like, oh, there you go, typical blank and blank and blank and blank. You gotta be really, really careful about doing that. Really careful because you're attacking a person rather than the substance of the issue. You're not attacking the actual teaching of a movement. You're not attacking an actual doctrine. You're just attacking people. And it's very easy for people to do the same thing to Christians all the time. And we hate it when people do it, don't we? We hate it when people turn on TV and our wacky uncle, the televangelist, is on TV, you know, telling people to sow $1,000 to break the back of debt. We're like, oh, please don't judge Christianity just based on crazy so-and-so who's on TV. None of us want people to do that. So let's make sure that we're not doing the same to anybody else. I'm not saying everybody else is being misrepresented. I'm saying we have to go to the actual substance of the issues and have opinions that are based on something substantive. And by the way, this logic applies to any of the atrocities committed in the name of Christ across the centuries. We don't need to fight people when they say, well, blank was terrible. The Crusades were terrible, the Inquisitions were terrible, and they were done by people who claimed to be Christians. We can say with good honesty and integrity, yes, that was awful. Those things were absolutely terrible. There are parts of the Crusades that were horrific. We don't need to defend them, but it doesn't change anything about the substance of Christianity, which is Jesus. And you have to know about the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and the writings of Jesus in Christianity in order to be able to judge whether the actions of those people accurately represent Jesus and Christianity. So let's apply the responses we just learned to one of history's most infamous dictators. Let's, let's put that next meme up here, Sydney, if we can. It's Hitler, and there's a quote from him from 1928. It's from a speech he gave in which he says, we tolerate no one in our ranks who attacks the ideas of Christianity. Our movement is Christian. It's a real quote, 100% real quote. And if you do the research, it's very clear that in the years leading to Hitler's ascent through the German political system to the position of Führer in Germany, he claimed consistently to be a Christian leading a Christian movement. He claimed that the Nazi party was Christian. And if you go online, you can find tons more quotes about the, the faith of Hitler. 
So obviously people will share this and they'll say, well, well then, here you go. The Third Reich was driven by the philosophies of Christianity. Hitler was empowered by Christianity. So what do you say to that? Well, let's apply what we've already learned. It's just this one big point. Self-proclamation alone does not prove one's beliefs. The fact that Hitler said he was a Christian leading a Christian movement doesn't prove that he was a Christian. Just as there are certain behaviors that must accompany veganism, Christians are bound to follow the example of Jesus and do their best to live in accordance with the teachings of Jesus. Did Hitler do this? Absolutely not. I'm super confident saying that. Super confident. Let me give you some highlights or lowlights. He systematically murdered 11 million people because of their ethnicity or handicap, including six million Jews. His goal was the total extermination of the Jewish race. How could Hitler be a genuine Christian if he would have been unwilling to even eat with Jesus because Jesus was Jewish? Like Gandhi, Hitler fashioned a Jesus of his own making. And if you read Hitler talking about Jesus, it becomes clear that the Jesus Hitler created for himself was a Jesus who hated the Jews and came to drive them from the earth. Jesus didn't succeed at that task. He was killed for trying to do it, and Hitler believed he was ordained by God to finish the job. Hitler either imprisoned or executed more than 6,000 clergymen in Germany on the charge of treasonable activity. He established the National Reich Church that projected him as a Superman, Ubermensch, Aryan God, and then banned Bibles and crosses in church. Bibles were replaced with copies of Mein Kampf, his autobiography, and crosses were replaced with swastikas. Hitler also printed his own version of the Bible, wherein words like Messiah and Hallelujah were altered. The Ten Commandments were changed to Twelve Commandments. Hitler demanded to be worshipped, and the Lord's Prayer in Hitler's Bibles was revised to read, Adolf Hitler, you are our great Fuhrer. Thy name makes the enemy tremble. Thy third right comes, and thy will alone is law upon the earth. Let us hear daily thy voice and order us by thy leadership. For we will obey to the end, even with our lives. We praise thee, Heil Hitler, Fuhrer my Fuhrer, given me by God. Protect and preserve my life for long. You save Germany in time of need. I thank you for my daily bread. Be with me for a long time. Do not leave me, Fuhrer my Fuhrer, my faith, my light. Hail my Fuhrer. And this prayer was recited by the Hitler youth. As Hitler systematically gained control over Protestant churches, genuine Christians in Germany responded by creating the Confessing Church Movement, is what they called it. They held to biblical Christianity, which put them in a position of direct opposition to Hitler and the Reich. The Confessing Church Movement counted among its founders, most famously Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian and pastor who was ultimately executed by hanging. Genuine Christians in Germany had to rebel against Hitler and for their biblically faithful actions they were either imprisoned or they were executed. And so you see when you, when you simply look at Hitler's behavior, especially towards the church in Germany, it becomes very clear based upon his actions that he was not a Christian. Remember anyone can do anything in the name of anybody. That does not mean that their actions faithfully represent the one they claim to represent. In reality, if you're interested, Hitler was far more influenced by the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, from whom he gleaned the concept of the Ubermensch, this, this super race that would go on to become the Aryans in Germany and be used as the doctrine of justification for all the genocides they would commit. If you know anything about Nietzsche, an avowed atheist, no Christian would ever follow his teachings. It's just that simple. Now there's a mistake that I think is easy for Christians to make when the issue of historical atrocities comes up. Something like the Crusades or, or people saying, you know, religion is responsible for, you know, 99% of all the deaths in history and things like that. Because when you stack the number of deaths caused by those who claim to be fighting for Christian causes, against those who claim to be fighting for atheistic or humanistic causes like socialism and fascism and communism, the numbers are shocking. I don't know if you've ever, ever seen the numbers, but 
atrocities driven by atheism and humanism killed, the numbers are astonishing, it's like more than 10 times as many people as all the wars that were ever even claimed to be done in the name of a religion. Atrocities driven by atheism and humanism account for, it's something crazy, like 95% of all deaths over the last 200 years. It's not even close, looking at things like Stalin's Russia, uh, Hitler's Germany, and things like that. And so it's very easy to want to trot those stats out as a Christian and be like, ha ha, atheists suck even more. But, but I don't think that that's helpful. I think that's a mistake because the common denominator in these violent human groups is not a worldview. The common denominator is, is humans. It's humans. And I don't think it's a good Christian counter-argument to essentially say, well, well, see, Christians actually only killed 15 million people in the last you know, 200 years. I don't think that's a good counterpoint. It's better to point out that the one thing in common with every atrocity Every act of evil is is the presence of humans. After thousands of years of history, we can safely say that humans have a predisposition to violence. I think we figured that out. Regardless of worldview, people will find a way to justify their evil actions. The question shouldn't be which group is more violent and more evil. The question should be, but which worldviews permit or even encourage violence and atrocities. Christians who commit horrific evil toward other humans actually have to do it in opposition to the teachings of their master Jesus. The gospels repeatedly demonstrate that Jesus came to, as Luke said, guide our feet into the way of peace. And Jesus taught his followers to love their enemies, pray for them, do good to them. Christians who have committed atrocities over the ages have had to do so in rebellion against God. They either ignored the teachings of Jesus or they were ignorant of the teachings of Jesus. Now let's go to the other side though. In an atheistic worldview, where there is no God, we're just here as the result of random chance, random biological development in the universe. In an atheistic worldview, there's little or no reason why any of us should feel compelled to treat other people with the respect that Jesus taught his followers to have for their enemies. If the world is simply filled with species and groups that are competing for the same resources, and if history belongs to those species and groups who are best suited for survival and reproduction, why should we be concerned about those groups who are not fit enough to survive? On what grounds, using what logic, Are we deeming the theories of Nietzsche or the actions of Hitler wrong? If you're an atheist, on what grounds can you say what they did is wrong when it's simply a stronger group exercising their strength in the competition for resources on planet Earth and simply winning? Is it wrong that they were winning? So write this down. Unlike Christians, This is logically true. I promise I'm not just making this up to try and make people sound bad. Unlike Christians, atheists can commit genocide without ignoring their worldview because eliminating competing groups would be a faithful expression of their worldview. If you believe in survival of the fittest, you believe this is how human evolution takes place, if you're an atheist, that's your worldview, you can commit genocide and it fits into the way that you see the world. You can't actually call it wrong because all genocide is is a stronger group exercising their strength over a weaker group so that they can survive and thrive to a greater degree. History is filled with examples of one population group replacing another in the natural struggle for resources. And so if atheism is true and survival and reproduction are the real only true concerns, then the struggle for resources authorizes and justifies human violence. It can't be called wrong. God has given us the freedom to follow our own nature or to follow the teachings of Jesus. Christians who have committed atrocities over the ages have simply submitted to their natural inclination rather than to the teachings of Jesus that are found in the Bible. Not everyone who calls himself a Christian is listening to the words of Jesus. Those of us who have identified ourselves as Christians and yet done evil things are either willfully resisting 
or rejecting the words of Jesus. We're not representing him rightly. And Jesus himself, when he was on the earth, he even told us that people who did not represent him would come along and do things in his name. It should be on your outlines. Jesus said this in Matthew 7. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, or not everyone who calls me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus says on the day of judgment, there's going to be people who say, Jesus, Jesus, my man, I did all these things in your name, all of them. And Jesus is going to say to a whole bunch of them, I never even knew you, no idea who you are because you didn't represent me. You weren't ever representing me. You were just trying to use my name to justify the evil things that you wanted to do. Jesus told us that would happen. And I feel as though I need to acknowledge a reality in this message too, because we cannot say that anybody who's had a negative experience with a Christian must have encountered a fake Christian. It'd be great if we could say that, right? Someone says, well, I had this really negative conversation with a Christian. We could just say, well, well, then clearly they were a fake Christian. If you didn't walk away loving them, not a real Christian. But it's not that simple. Because somebody might ask a Christian what they believe about something. And that Christian might tell them the truth about what they believe as a Christian. And they might accurately describe what Jesus in the Bible teaches about that particular issue. And no matter how the Christian frames their answer or delivers their answer, that person might be offended by the content of their answer. That does not mean that that Christian is not faithfully representing Jesus. It means that the person they're speaking to does not like what Jesus has to say about that issue. And situations like that happen, and they're gonna happen more and more for Christians in the future. We have to be very careful that we don't believe this lie that's sort of sweeping through the modern church. And it's the lie that everybody loved Jesus. And so if you're a good Christian, if you're being like Jesus, then everyone will love you because everyone loved Jesus. Everyone loved being around Jesus, right? Well, wrong. Not everybody loved Jesus. He offended tons of people. Read the Bible. For his entire ministry, people were trying to kill him. Everybody did not love Jesus. And don't forget that some of the people he came to preach and minister to actually got together to arrange his execution and murder. And there were thousands of people calling for it when it happened. So no, not everybody loved Jesus. Not everybody loved what Jesus had to say. Not everybody loved what Jesus taught. And not everybody will love the Christian who faithfully shares what Jesus taught. Many won't. Many won't. We're praying today for the persecuted church. There's Christians faithfully, accurately representing who Jesus is, what Christianity is, all around the world who are being imprisoned, tortured, murdered for doing just that because some people don't want to hear it. The issue is whether or not a Christian's actions accurately represent Jesus. But it's not true that if they do represent Jesus accurately, then everyone will love and appreciate them. It's just not true. And if you ever find yourself in this kind of conversation with a believer, talking about the actions of Christians as individuals they know or the actions of Christians across history, I would encourage you to do everything you can to share the gospel. If you're in that kind of conversation, the door is already open. You're having a spiritual discussion. It is such a great opportunity to, to, to just tell the person, hey, hey, listen, we're having this whole discussion about Christians and and I just want to be sure that, that you understand like what the central message of Christianity is. Do you mind if I just take like a couple of minutes and just like tell you what it is? So easy to do that in that situation. And then just share the gospel with them. They're not going to say no. Just share the gospel with them in five or ten minutes. If you don't know how to do that, go on the website. There's a button on the homepage that says the gospel. Watch the video there. We share the gospel in just a few minutes. But people need to know that it's possible to be a Christian and mess up. It's possible to be a Christian and be rude or or let somebody down or gossip or mess up in, in all kinds of ways. Share the gospel so that people will understand that Christianity 
does not make Christians perfect, and Christians don't claim to be perfect, nor does the Bible teach that we can be perfect in this life. The gospel declares that we're forgiven and loved by a God who's perfect, and we do our best to follow him very imperfectly. If someone were to say, you know, well, I've known Christians, they were real jerks, so why would I want to be a Christian? I think a helpful answer would be something along the lines of, well, you should want to be a Christian not because it magically makes you a better person, but because it's the only way to be made right with God. It's the only way to have your sins forgiven. We don't become Christians so that we can become better people. We don't claim even that becoming a Christian automatically makes us better people. We don't claim that Christians are better people than other people. We claim that Christians are forgiven by God. That's the central claim of Christianity, that we've been made right with God through Jesus. That's what it's all about. So I'm gonna close with this. The things we've talked about today bring to mind two things that I think every Christian needs to understand and remember. We're gonna write these down. The first one is this. Firstly, being a Christian means actively following Jesus. Actively following Jesus. I just wanna make sure we don't miss this today. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, or that means to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I wanna make sure that we all clearly understand that being a Christian means Jesus is our Lord. It means he is our master, he is our boss. In our lives, Jesus is the CEO on a board of one. Right, the, the flesh, our own desires, they don't get a seat on the board. The culture we live in doesn't get a seat on the board. They don't get a vote. We're following Jesus. And anyone who believes that you can become a Christian without seeking to actively follow Jesus, who does not follow Jesus, is like a person who believes that you can become a vegan without giving up meat. You cannot become a Christian and say, I'm gonna become a Christian, but I'm not interested in actually following Jesus then you're not a Christian. You're a vegan who wants to go on keep eating meat. It just doesn't work. It's just not an option. And so may we not be like Gandhi or Hitler and follow a Jesus of our own making, a fictional Jesus that perfectly fits with how we desire to live our lives for this one great reason. That Jesus does not exist. He does not exist. And so he cannot save. He cannot forgive us from our sins. He cannot make us right with God because he's an invention of our own mind. He's not real. Every one of us needs to be crystal clear in our understanding that being a Christian means actively following Jesus. Actively following Jesus. Then secondly, what we've talked about today highlights yet again the truth. Write this down, that those who want to know the real Jesus must know his word. If you want to know the real Jesus, you've got to know his word. You've got to be in the Bible. You've got to be in the scriptures. Why? Because there are so many people in the world seeking to promote a Jesus of their own making. There are so many churches teaching a Jesus of their own making. I like this part, this part, this part, not those parts. They may not have out the scissors or a razor blade, but they are making their own Jefferson Bible by choosing to only focus, teach, and focus on certain aspects of Jesus, the parts they know won't offend, the parts they know will get a positive reaction. But they're teaching you a Jesus who doesn't exist. And you're depending on a gospel that doesn't exist to save your soul. And we cannot live that way. We have to be in the word for ourselves. The way you get to know the real Jesus, the way you avoid being deceived by those who make false claims about Jesus is by getting into the whole Bible because then you're gonna get a full view of God, not just some verses pulled out of context, not someone else's agenda. It's also gonna stop you from deceiving yourself and creating a Jesus of your own making. Those who want to know the real Jesus must find him in his word. Got to do it. So with that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much for the truth and the clarity of your word, Jesus. Thank you that you do not want us to be deceived. Lord, you do not want us to be confused about who you are. 
And so you gave us your word to tell us about you, about what you're like, about how you behave, about how you act, about how you treat your children and about how you love us. And so, Father, I pray we wouldn't settle for secondhand accounts of you, but we would know you for ourselves. And I pray, Jesus, that if any of us has been following a version of you that we've made up or someone else has made up, Lord, would you just expose that right now? Speak to us clearly and let us know that so that we can repent, so that we can change, and so that we can begin to follow the real Jesus who loves us, laid down his life for us, and saves us and heals us. Thank you that the real version of you is better than what anyone could make up. It's better than anything we could make up. Thank you that your love, your goodness, your peace, your everything good, Jesus. Father, I pray you would just speak to every heart in this room right now, Lord. You're our provider in every area of life. And as always, we just ask that whatever we need, Lord, you would begin to fill us with it right now. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.